Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, the podcast that helps you build your very own Flatpak non-branded bookshelf of Swedish history. Yes, hello and welcome and welcome to an extra special episode, special episode number seven on Swedish symbols. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris, and we're your hosts on this journey through Swedish history. But first, we should say Merry Christmas, especially if you're one of the crazy people listening to this on the day of release. Uh, It's the 25th of December, the real Christmas day, not this silly 24th of December nonsense that's going on here in Sweden. Hmm. If you are listening to this episode on the day that it is released, then it is indeed the 25th of December, Christmas Day, or Juldagen in Sweden. But here we do the bulk of the celebration on the 24th, Julafton, or Christmas Eve. A few other countries celebrate the main Christmas day on the 24th. Uh, That includes Denmark, Finland, Norway, Poland, Portugal, as well as some parts of Switzerland, Germany and Austria. There is a king's speech here in Sweden on the 25th of December, but it's not as old as the one in the UK. The current king gave a speech when he was heir to the throne as crown prince in 1972, and from 1973 is given a speech every year as king. Funnily enough, it was actually only on radio all the way up to 2007 when it was on TV for the first time in Sweden. The king's predecessor as king, Gustav VI, Adolf, only gave a few Christmas speeches in 1951, 57, 64, 66 and 69, so he never did it two years in a row. He couldn't be bothered, he had other stuff to do. Yeah, so it's really interesting how it only really became a proper tradition until the current king took over in the early 70s. Yeah. But yes, if you are listening to us on Christmas Day, then Merry Christmas. I guess still Merry Christmas if you're listening to us a bit later than that. But as also said, today is a special episode, one where we step out of our ordinary chronological journey through Swedish history and do an episode on a thing, an event, or a phenomenon that we find particularly interesting. So far we've done these special episodes on urban bomb shelters, civilian dog tags, and our favourite places in Skorna, to name just a few. Today's topic, or at least part of it, was actually suggested to us by listener Michael in Canada, who got in touch via email to say that he hoped to hear more about the Dala horse in a special episode, which we thought was a great idea. Indeed, it's always great when listeners send us some ideas and suggestions for topics to include in the podcast, especially for these special episodes. We might not always be able to act on it right away, or maybe exactly how it was suggested because of the format of the podcast or where we are in the research or the timeline, but we definitely take it into consideration. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate the involvement of everybody sending us in some ideas. So today we're going to talk about the Dala horse, uh, but not just that. We're going to talk about general things that in one way or another have become symbols of Sweden. But before that, we should do something that's a big symbol of Sweden, uh, the Swedish language and the Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, this week's phrase is ha en hållhake på någon. 
So that means in English to have a clincher on someone, uh, a clincher being a tool that is to hold something in place, sort of like a fastener. And it's used uh, by carpenters when building wooden houses and all sorts of stuff. I hope this phrase isn't too literal. No, it's not at all. It doesn't mean to actually hold another person in place with a tool. Instead, it means to have knowledge about a person that can be used to control that person's action so blackmailing essentially you could say oh everyone knows that the foreign secretary har en hållhake per the prime minister she always gets her way in government she must know something that they don't want the public to know okay so yeah you've got a hold on someone you're able to control that person's actions have a hold on someone or a grip on someone, in other words. And uh, that machine tool we maybe call a clamp, uh, the clincher or, or whatever. Yeah, that's it, basically. Great. So I guess we're going to see that in many more instances over the course of the podcast. Uh, people persuading other people to do things they might not want to do. Yeah, a lot of people will have a lot of hållhakar on each other throughout history, uh, in politics especially, throughout the ages. So that was the phrase of the week, a segment we know is very popular with a lot of our listeners. And we actually got a message from Roel a few weeks ago, um, who's really been enjoying the Swedish phrases and saying it helps him with his language skills. So we hope this one has been helpful too. Yeah, that's really great, uh, Roel. I hope you can work this week's phrase into your vocabulary as well. And thank you so much for your email. So Chris... What would you say is a symbol of your home country, of England or the UK? Well, oh, I don't know, maybe the foot guards in their red uniform jackets and bearskin caps outside Buckingham Palace, or a cup of tea, fish and chips, Houses of Parliament, the Queen when she was still alive, maybe Paddington Bear, although he's from Peru. He's technically from deepest, darkest Peru, to be precise, but I know what you mean. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that pretty much every country has these objects or people or events that become symbols of the country, the sort of things that are then made into souvenirs and used in ad campaigns by tourism boards. That's true, and sometimes it can be quite arbitrary and not very historically sound why these things become symbols of the country. We actually just got a book about old travel brochures and adverts about Visit Sweden from sort of like the 20s and 30s, and you definitely see some of this stuff in that book. And we'll see that today, because in this episode we'll cover the backstory of a few things that can be seen as symbols of Sweden. Obviously this isn't an exhaustive list, not least because what is a symbol of one country is largely subjective and likely to depend on who you ask and where they come from. But these are a few things that we thought might be interesting enough to look into in more detail. First up, perhaps the symbol on our list that is the most official in the sense that we have it on public buildings in Sweden, the royal family uses it, it's even on all our passports, and that is the three crowns symbol. Yes, the three crowns placed in a triangle with one on the top and two on the sides, that's 
perhaps the most official symbol of Sweden, so to speak, along with the flag. And it's not just an official symbol, it's also the nickname for the Swedish national ice hockey team, and half of the name of one of our cool podcasts we like to listen to, Two Guys, Three Crowns, who have uh, sadly released their last ever episode, but there's a big backlog of episodes about life in Sweden, and they cover a lot of these symbols as they go. So if you want to listen to two Americans talk about Sweden, definitely give those guys a listen. Sweden is the only country in the world that uses this symbol, and it's one of the oldest symbols that we still have. Like we said, it's used in all sorts of official capacities, as it features on both the large and the small Swedish coat of arms. Now, as to the question of where the three crowns come from and what they symbolise, Well, there are as many ideas about that as there are historians, both actual academic ones and more hobby ones. Yeah, some say the three crowns symbolise the three Nordic kingdoms, just where we got up to right now in the regular episodes, which for a period of time were joined together in the Kalmar Union. But then it's a bit suspicious that it's only been in use as a symbol in Sweden and wasn't used in any of the other kingdoms. Along the same theme, some say that the three crowns symbolise the three regions of Sweden, Götaland, Svealand and Norland, or even Götaland, Svealand and Skåneland, or that it symbolises the three regions, Folklands, within Uppland County. <laughs> yeah, so basically any number of three things. Yeah. Uh, there's almost certainly no real way to determine for sure what these three crowns originally were. And I guess to some extent, the whole point of a symbol like this is that it's up to interpretation and people across time and in different places can read it in whatever way they want. Uh, But it's worth noting that whilst the three crowns is officially only used in Sweden today, it's not actually a unique Swedish symbol. No, on the contrary. During the Middle Ages, when this symbol first appeared in Sweden, this was quite a popular depiction across Europe. In the 12 and 1300s, we see the three crowns appearing in particularly on churches on the European continent, and for example on the city hall in Cologne in Germany, and then it's used to symbolise the three wise men that came to visit Jesus when he was a newborn, according to the Bible. These three wise men are also referred to as the three kings. In Spanish, for example, they are called Los Reyes Magicos, the magical kings. And as kings, their natural symbol is the crown. And it's around the late 1200s, early 1300s when we see them appearing on the European continent. This is when they're introduced in Sweden, first by King Magnus Ladulos, or Magnus III, who starts using them in his seal in 1270. And then it's King Albert, Albert of Mecklenburg, who we've just kicked off the stage in the regular podcast. And he was himself from modern-day Germany and might have been introduced to the popular three-crown symbol back home. And he decided to put the three crowns on the national coat of arms in Sweden, and that's where it stayed ever since. So yeah, maybe it was just a popular symbol at the time, used across Europe in various places, and just happened to be brought to Sweden by kings who wanted to be in keeping with the trends of the time, and so it just stayed here. It was even the name of the main castle in Stockholm, the Trekrona Castle, something which was expanded a lot by Birger back in the 1200s, and probably named the Trekrona Castle in the 1300s by King Magnus IV. 
Annoyingly, that castle burnt down in 1697 and was replaced later in the mid-1700s by the current palace. This fire has made so much of our research for the podcast so much harder, as inside the Trekrona castle was most of Sweden's national library and the royal archives of the time. These went up in flames along with the castle, making a lot of Sweden's early history quite difficult to document, especially when compared with similar countries in Western Europe. But anyway, where the symbol comes from as a whole, well, any reason is as likely as any other. I guess the beauty of the three crowns is that it's non-specific enough to be adaptable and interpreted as needed, like we said, and that makes it a durable symbol. Now, talking of durable symbols, and one very appropriate for this episode, there's a very durable symbol of Sweden that comes around at Christmas, and that is the Christmas goat up in Jävla. Yes, Julbocken, made out of straw, usually in a smaller format, as a decoration in people's homes, but in Jävla they have a massive one on the town square that we went to see. Yeah, and so now we're going to clip in here uh, some recordings of when we're standing outside right next to the goat in about minus 14 degrees Celsius, which is very cold. It's actually 5 degrees Fahrenheit for people who use that uh, method of measuring temperature. Um, Yeah, so let's just hand over to Chris and Orsa in Yevla. And hello from outside in a place in, well, not northern Sweden, but more north than Stockholm at least. An hour and a half north of Stockholm, it's a flat pack history of Sweden live in Gävle. And Gävle is famous in December because it is the home of the world's largest straw Christmas goat. And it's pretty huge. This goat has its own Instagram page and Facebook page, its own webcam, live webcam that the council put up. And the council make this giant Christmas goat to get in the Christmas spirit. And it's become a bit of a world famous goat, hasn't it? Because uh, people like setting it on fire. Yeah, I mean, the goat is in itself huge. It's I'm reading from the official uh, sign here next to it. It's 13 metres high, so that's a little over 14. 2 feet and then it's 7 meters long and it weighs 3.6 tons that's pretty heavy and it's 1 3 13 meters high not 30 yeah. uh, 3 0 would be huge even huger than it is uh, at the moment but yeah and it's just in this random square in uh, this random swedish town um what more facts do we know about it well you people might be wondering why a goat and why of straw well straw is a popular material for Swedish handicrafts in general. It's been easily accessible and you can make all sorts of things of it. And then why a goat for Christmas? Well, before we were kind of influenced by Germany and Britain and the US, we actually had a goat uh, delivering presents uh, in, uh, uh, in centuries gone by here in Sweden. Uh, but this one doesn't 
deliver any presents. He's just here, standing, looking cool. It doesn't look like he delivers much uh, other than good vibes here on the square. We're here and this Christmas goat is famous, at least in Sweden, uh, not just for being here, but also for burning down many, many times. Well, it's not just in Sweden. He's famous around the world. The BBC always does an article about it when it burns down and The Guardian and things. And that's why he has two layers of wooden fences all around him and a permanent security guard and cameras and everything because yeah back in the well a couple of decades ago people started setting it on fire and uh, that's now almost more of the tradition than the actual uh, <laughs> building the goat and as if uh, fire and arson wasn't enough for the poor christmas goat he's also been rammed with a car and apparently kidnapped at one point the sign here says which i think is a feat in itself i'm pretty sure one year someone tried to take him away by a helicopter so i think that's that's it so yeah there's we'll, we'll give a link below to the history of the christmas goat because it's insane if james bond was set in sweden that would be a plot to one of the james bond movies yeah anything more that it says on the sign that we've missed out before we go back to the inside and say goodbye it is quite cold uh here so uh yeah we probably should round off and uh, say goodbye i would recommend that you follow the goat on twitter where he tweets as himself uh and he's not very modest on twitter no no he likes himself quite a bit um <laughs> But yeah, it, we, we won't stay out here very long because it's minus 11 Celsius. Uh, no idea what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's uh, cold. Yeah, it's cold. Um, so yeah. Right, bye from the square in Yevle and bye from the Christmas goat. Yeah, and back to us back home in the warm uh, a few weeks ago. <laughs> That was great. Thank you, Elsa and Chris in Gävle. But now, moving on, what other symbols of Sweden are there? Another durable symbol, and alongside the three crowns, is the most official symbol of Sweden, is probably the flag. Yes, the flag. I suppose flags in general are the ultimate symbol of any country. And so Sweden's symbol is a yellow cross on a blue canvas. And much like the three crowns, it's been a symbol of Sweden since the Middle Ages. In fact, there are historians that claim that the Swedish flag is one of the oldest ones still in use by an independent nation-state. The Danes, though, like to claim the honour of having the world's oldest flag with their white cross on a red canvas. Well, not just claim, I think most people accept that that's true. Mm, yes. One theory is actually that the Swedish flag, probably uh, aptly as we've seen so far in the podcast, was created to be in opposition to the Danish flag. So because theirs was red and white, the Swedish one would have to be blue and yellow. Something that corroborates this theory is that Swedish nobleman and councillor Karl Knutsson Bonda, who will appear at some point in our regular timeline coming up, he fought against the Danes and his colours were blue and yellow. So that could be one potential source of this colour scheme. Yeah, and that was in the early 1400s. But much like with the Three Crowns, we will never know for sure, because there's no written source describing the origin of the flag or when it was first used. One thing we do know, however, is that the oldest preserved image of the Swedish flag is, ironically, from Finland. It's from Obo Castle in the 1500s. Now, originally the flag was only something that the royals used as a symbol of their power and position. 
Gradually, from the 1500s, with the establishment of a permanent army and navy, the flag also became a military symbol. During what is called the Great Power Era, the Stormaxtid in the 1600s, when Sweden essentially had a Baltic Sea Empire for a while, the flag became much more prominent. This is also when the three-tongued flag became to be used by the royal family and the navy. It's just the flag that just has three pointy bits at one end instead of, uh, instead of a flat end, a bit like a snake's tongue. And the navy used it not least to distinguish their ships from those of the merchant navy, and that's still the case today. Swedish military naval vessels fly the three-tongued flag whilst any other vessel fly the regular straight flag square oblongy one. Nonetheless, the flag remained something that wasn't really in the public's consciousness for a very long time. Private homes and individuals didn't really fly the flag. So unless you lived near a royal palace or an army or navy base, you might have never seen the flag. In fact, when Sweden introduced compulsory military service in 1901, a mini poll was taken on a group of 140 new recruits and only five of the young men recognised the blue flag with the yellow cross as the flag of Sweden. That's unbelievable. Five of 140 could recognise their own country's flag. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I almost don't believe that. But this would change as the early 1900s would see an explosion of the Swedish flag, and this was due to several factors. Modern factory textile production made buying a flag cheaper, and the introduction of mail-order catalogues, which were hugely popular in a largely rural country like Sweden, also made it easier for you to buy one. World War I made the flags of various countries more well-known, and then, last but not least, we had the dissolution of the Norwegian-Swedish Union in 1905, and that played a huge part. Yes, that definitely played a part, because you see, our dear brother people in the West love their flag. I mean, love it. You cannot move for Norwegian flags in Norway. They stick them on everything. And unlike Sweden, they go absolutely mad for their national day on the 17th of May. So when the Norwegian move for independence rose to prominence, a major symbolic thing was that they should be allowed to use their Norwegian flag without the tiny Swedish flag in the top left corner, which was the symbol of the Union. Because during the Union era from 1814 to 1905, when it was Sweden and Norway as one country and a union, the Swedish flag would have a tiny Norwegian flag in one corner and vice versa on the Norwegian flag. And so this was colloquially known as the Sill Salad or the Herring Salad because, uh, yeah, why not? Well, there's actually a reason. You see, Sill Salad or Herring Salad is a dish. It's a mix of herring, potatoes and beetroot, all diced up and mixed together. And it has a sort of multicoloured purplish colour. I guess the mix of blue and yellow in the Swedish flag and then the red, white and blue in the Norwegian flag, well, it just ended up looking purplish, especially from a distance. So it made people think of Sitsalad. Anyway, for the Norwegians, it became of symbolic importance that the seal salad was removed from their flag, and they started to wave their flag around and put it on everything so people could see it. And Sweden moved to counter that, and this started a trend of branding the Swedish flag a bit more, both on private and public buildings. Today, Sweden isn't a massively flag-branding country, I wouldn't say. 
not compared to, yeah, our neighbours in Norway or even in the US, but you certainly do see the flag around, both on public buildings, but also on flagpoles in the gardens of private homes or on people's pleasure crafts, these small sailing boats that are quite popular around the coasts and on the larger lakes in the country. I'd say very popular. Uh, they're everywhere in Sweden. You certainly see the flag more in Sweden than you do in the UK, flying from people's homes, but it isn't all over the place. Like everything in Sweden, it's probably a happy medium. <laughs> but now it's time to move from official symbols like the three crowns and the flag to more general and common symbols. And the first one is the one that means we're doing this whole episode in the first place, the Dala horse. Yes, the Dala horse. It's a small wooden figurine in the shape of a horse carved out of a single piece of wood and painted brightly red with patterns in blue, white, yellow and green. As the name indicates, it originates from Dalarna, a county in west-central Sweden that's sometimes nicknamed the Sweden of Sweden, thanks to it being where a lot of cultural traditions and icons originate from, but also probably the best preserved. I guess it's a bit like how everybody thinks Germany is Bavaria. Yeah, and Dalarna was also a popular place for artists to live, especially during the era of the National Romantic Movement in art and culture in the 1800s, which helped cement that whatever was seen in Dalarna was typically Swedish through famous paintings and poetry being created there. We'll no doubt cover this movement in art and culture when we get to it in our chronological journey, but that's going to be quite a while. So if you want a sneak peek, just do a Google image search of Anders Zorn or Carl Larsson, two of the most famous painters of the period, so you can get an idea of what we're talking about. And if you want to get an idea of what the Dala horse looks like, check out our Facebook and Twitter where we've posted a picture of this little wooden figurine for this special episode. Now, it's essentially impossible to say when this symbol was created or when the practice of carving small wooden horses began, mainly because it's likely one of those things that have sort of always been around, so to speak. In rural agricultural Sweden, people have always had spare pieces of wood lying around that they could just pick up and carve into tools or figurines, either for decoration or as toys or for whatever they want. It was just a way to pass the time in front of the fire on their long winter nights. The horse as a motif is ancient, of course. In Sweden, it dates back to at least the Bronze Age, where we've seen it depicted on rock carvings in Bohuslän in the west of Sweden in our very first episodes. For centuries, actually, up until the first decades of the 1900, the horse was, of course, an essential part of life for most Swedes as a mode of transport, a tool in farming, pulling all those plows, and in warfare. Not so much as food, like in France, though. No. That's not to say we didn't eat horse, but it's yeah. not part of the traditional cuisine as much. Initially, the little wooden horses wouldn't have been painted. That would have been a luxury that most people wouldn't be able to afford or even obtain these brightly coloured paints. The first painted dollar horses don't make their appearance until the 1700s. In fact, the pattern on them are a remnant of a style of painting that was particularly popular at the time. These kinds of patterns had been popularised through illustrations in Bibles at the time, and since the Bible was the only book that most Swedes owned, if, if people owned a book, it would be the Bible, 
even if they didn't own one themselves, maybe they had seen one. So these patterns were an inspiration that was accessible to a lot of people. The fact that the base colour on the horses is red can most likely be explained by the fact that this specific type of red paint, for le rode is produced in Dalarna and therefore would have been more accessible for people there. We talked about Farlu Rödfei in episode 50 about the great copper mountain mine in Farloon because the paint itself is actually produced by a byproduct of the mine like we mentioned. So uh, go back and listen to that episode if you want a little bit more background on the paint. So the little wooden horses have been around for a long time. They get their red colour and nice patterns about 300 or so years ago but it's not really until the 1900s that they become the symbol of Sweden that they are today. And for that we can thank two things in particular, the NK department store in Stockholm and the World Fair in New York City. Because like Orsa said, before the 1920s the Dala horses were produced and sold in a small scale by people just carving them in front of a fire at home. They were then sold on predominantly as toys by travelling salesmen that went from farm to farm or house to house or village to village, selling an assortment of random products or putting up their market stalls at local village markets. But in 1928, a representative from the NK department store, which is a huge uh, department store, a bit like Harrods or Macy's, and this is in Stockholm, and he was travelling around Dalarna and happened to see some of these finely painted, amazing wooden horses. The representative saw the potential for these horses to become a suitable souvenir for tourists visiting Sweden, and especially Stockholm, so he began buying them up in huge quantities from locals in Dalarna. For one family, the Olsons in the village of Nusnes, this became big business. They began employing people to carve and paint these horses and then sell them on to NK and they're still the biggest producers of Dala horses today. Although these days they're mostly sold to other venues other than NK, of course, they're sold all around Sweden. I mean, talk about an enduring family business for the Orsons. It's not a coincidence that the Dala horses burst onto the scene, so to say, in the 1920s, because this was the time when tourism to Sweden began to be a real thing. Up until then, Sweden had been a relatively poor and forgotten about corner in northern Europe that most people saw no real reason to visit whatsoever. Moreover, tourism itself became a more affordable and available thing for people across Europe in the 1920s, with laws regulating working hours and even paid time off work in the form of holidays becoming a thing. And what did tourists want? Well, they want souvenirs, a little memory of the place that they've been to. The dollar horse is in many ways an ideal souvenir. It's original, it's unique, it's a handicraft, but also it's relatively inexpensive, since it's just a single small piece of carved wood. It's also not very heavy, helpful in today's time, when you have luggage allowance and so on, and also, I guess, helpful before the invention of the wheelie suitcase, when they actually had to carry their bags. Either way, it was perfect as a souvenir. So the rep from NK found that gap in the market, that need for these new tourists to have something nice, original and relatively cheap to buy and take home with them, and the Dala horse, like you said, fits the bill perfectly. About a decade later, the Dala horse made another jump, uh, pun intended, when the Swedish stall at the 1939 World Fair in New York displayed them when showcasing things all about Sweden. 
In fact, the Dana horse seemed to be particularly popular in the US, where it's often served as a symbol of Sweden to Swedish-American communities all over the country. It's actually a bit ironic, but sales of the Dala horses to Swedes in Sweden went up in the later parts of the 1900s once we realised how popular a symbol it was of Sweden in America. So in a way, we copied Americans using a Swedish symbol back to Sweden. Yeah, that's quite funny. And I suppose that throughout the 20th century, American culture was hugely influential in Sweden anyway. So maybe you thought, well, if the Americans think this cool little Swedish horse is great, then we should too, I guess. I think you're probably very right. Anyway, the Dala horse remain a popular souvenir to buy when visiting Sweden. The tourist shops in Gamla Stan here in Stockholm are certainly full of them. But they're also a much-loved piece of decoration in people's homes here in Sweden. A genuine Dala horse is still made from a single piece of wood, handmade and hand-painted in the traditional red with white, blue, green and yellow pattern. And perhaps most importantly... A genuine Dala horse is made in Dalarna. And we've got one. It's great. It's uh, a great thing to have. We talked about the flag earlier being perhaps the symbol, not just of Sweden, but of any country. And you mentioned Norway going mad for their national day on the 17th of May. Uh, like we said, Sweden doesn't really do that. Uh, I've, we've lived here for two years now and also lived here growing up. And I've hardly noticed when the Swedish national day is. The one thing you do notice, speaking of flags, is that buses have mini Swedish flags on them, which they do on flag days. And these aren't actually necessarily holidays where you get time off work, but they're just a ceremonial holiday. Uh, and that's when the flag is flown more often. Yeah, and one of those is the Swedish National Day, which, by the way, is on the 6th of June. And um, why is it that day? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, really? So you just picked a random day in the calendar? Well, it sort of seems like it in some ways. The weather is usually quite nice, so I don't know. Uh, the thing is, the National Day wasn't even a bank holiday or a national holiday until 2005, meaning that until then, nobody had the day off school or work. And for a long time, it wasn't even called the National Day. It was called the Day of the Swedish Flag. So, yeah, for, for most of us, it just passed us by, really. But whilst you might not know the number one reason, like the legitimate reason, there's a few sort of historical reasons that people think this might have been chosen as the day, right? Yeah, the reason given for why the Swedish National Day is the 6th of June are usually three. First of all, Gustav Vosa, an important figure in Swedish history, who we'll no doubt talk a lot about when we get to him in the timeline, he was elected king on that day in 1523. Then the Constitution of 1809, which laid the foundations for parliamentarism and later on democracy, well, that was signed on that day in 1809. And lastly, the revised Constitution of 1974 came into force on the 6th of June. 
I mean, none of them are really great reasons for a national day. Maybe Gustav Vasa, considering how important he was. But it's a bit boring when you compare it to the memory of a revolution, like in France and the US, or independence in places like Norway and Finland. Yeah, just a guy became king, or um, we we uh, elected this new constitution. That's or even re- we revised the, <laughs> yeah. the constitution. That That's very boring. Yeah, the 4th of July isn't the 4th of July because that was when the Sixth Amendment was passed or something. And, well, maybe that's why us Swedes struggle to really get going and celebrate, like you do in countries where the National Day is held in memory of independence or a national struggle. Sometimes, when we're a bit cynical, Swedes say that we don't celebrate our National Day because there's nothing to celebrate. And whilst, without sounding too nationalistic or even patriotic, there might be reasons to celebrate Sweden and celebrate living in Sweden, we don't have an event to celebrate on a particular day as such. Also, unlike all of our Nordic neighbours, who do celebrate their national days in various ways, more than we do, Sweden hasn't been occupied in, well forever, depending on how you define occupation. Some historians claim that Denmark technically occupied bits of Sweden in 1519, but either way, that's far back in history and not something that's remained in the public consciousness. Whereas Finland, well, only gained independence in the 20th century, and Norway and Denmark were both occupied by Nazi Germany during World War II, so there's more of a living memory of what it's like to have your country taken away from you. So there's definitely a similarity between Sweden and the UK, which hasn't been occupied, or at least the British mainland hasn't been in essentially forever, and when you talk about history, it's a long time ago. And we don't really have a national day either. The individual countries of the United Kingdom have their saints' days, like St. George's Day, but that's a bit of a joke day. Uh, I have no idea when St. George's Day is, for example. Another reason why Swedes don't get going and celebrate their national day might be that it's just too close to what is the real main Swedish national holiday after Christmas, and that's Midsummer. And that brings us neatly to the last symbol of Sweden, which we're going to cover in this episode, mainly Midsummer and the Midsummer Maypole. So, uh, what is Midsummer? Well, the clue is sort of in the name. It's the middle of summer. Well, it's not really, because it's in the second half of June, and summer in Sweden is usually June, July, and August, so it's actually more in the middle of the year. Yeah, it's held around the summer solstice, meaning the day with the longest period of daylight and the shortest night of the year, when the sun is at its highest position in the sky. The summer and winter solstices, i.e. the lightest and darkest days, occur in both the northern and southern hemispheres, and in many cultures it's been marked by some sort of celebration since ancient times. Midsummer is a pre-Christian tradition that the Christian church then made use of since it coincides with the day of St. John the Baptist. Oh yeah, nice timing that he was apparently born around the same time as there was already a major holiday that people celebrated and that Christianity could tag its important ceremonies to. It's much like how Jesus was born in midwinter around the same time when there was also already celebrations being held. Uh, hmm, nice coincidences here for when Christianity wants to establish itself. 
Yeah, that's a whole other podcast, though. Um, Midsummer is actually called Johannes in Finland and St. Hans Day in Norway and Denmark, which are all versions of the name of St. John. Midsummer is celebrated in Sweden over two days, actually. Uh, Midsummer Afton, or Midsummer's Eve, on the 23rd of June, and Midsummer Dog, Midsummer's Day, on the 24th. And there's this theme that you guys have in Sweden, right, where you have holidays over two days, one being the eve and one being the actual day. They're sort of everywhere. Yeah. So much like in the rest of the world, we have Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, 24th and 25th of December, and New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, 31st of December and 1st of January. But then for Easter, we have Easter Eve, what in English we call Good Friday, and then there's Easter Day. And there's Pentecost Eve and Pentecost Day, not celebrated much these days, but used to be bank holidays when I was a kid. And then to add to the celebrations, we have something called Annandagen, or Second Day. So there's Annandagjul, Second Day Christmas, what in English we call Boxing Day, and Annandagpåsk, Easter Sunday. But there's no Annandag Midsummer. No, for Midsummer you just get two days. And like we do when celebrating most of our holidays, we eat herring, salmon and potatoes and drink snaps, which is various kinds of infused vodkas, essentially. Yeah, you guys don't really mix up the menu either. That's, so that's probably a symbol of Sweden, is having a celebration where is herring and potatoes for Christmas, Easter and Midsummer. <laughs> I remember when you and I first met and it was time for a new Swedish holiday, you used to ask me, is this one of those where you eat herring and potatoes? And I had to keep telling you, yes, always. Herring and potatoes. Don't question the herring and potatoes. For midsummer, you do get strawberries for dessert, though. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, you don't like strawberries either. No, I love strawberries. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> I forgot what you like. For midsummer, you get strawberries for dessert, and you get to dance around the maple, the midsummer stong. Yes, the Midsummer Maypole. Again, something that, like the Dala Horse, you find for sale as miniature versions in souvenir shops if you come to Sweden. Maypoles and dancing around the maypoles are not unique to Sweden. It's something you find across many, mainly European cultures, including in the UK. The Swedish-style maypole, though, is quite unique, I guess. Yes, it's one long pole vertically, and then a pole horizontally with two rings hanging off it, and then it's decorated with green leaves and flowers. And unlike in some other European countries where you dance around the maypole and the maypole has ribbons attached to it that you sort of spin around while dancing, we don't have the ribbons. We just dance around ours without touching it. And in one dance, you pretend to be frogs. <laughs> yes, we do. We can't even open the door to why we do that. That's too weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, our Nordic neighbors like to make fun of us for the frog dance in particular. But none of them have midsummer maypoles. Uh, instead, they light big bonfires. And the days there, the holidays there, aren't really as big as the one in Sweden either. The bonfire thing is still around in Sweden, but that's saved for another day, the 30th of April, called Valiboy, um, because Sweden just has to do it a bit differently to the others. Yeah, I guess so. Whilst celebrating Midsummer itself is most likely an ancient tradition in Sweden, the Midsummer Maple is not. 
The earliest record of it is from the late 1600s, and it's most likely influenced by maypoles in Germany and brought to Sweden by German traders, who we've already seen in our timeline have a huge impact on Sweden and Swedish culture and Swedish language. In fact, the word itself, maypole, or maistung in Swedish, comes from the old German word mayen, meaning to decorate, and actually has nothing to do with the month of May. Actually, it's a bit weird that we finish this episode by talking about Midsummer because we're releasing it during the holiday at the other end of the calendar at Christmas. But yeah, why not? And that is probably going to be it for this run through some of Sweden's symbols. However you celebrate, or indeed if you don't celebrate Christmas at all, you can at least celebrate that this episode is out. And uh, we hope you're having a good time and you've enjoyed this special episode on a few things that can be said to be symbols of Sweden. And Happy New Year to everyone else, uh, because there won't be another new episode until 2023. So, Happy New Year. Yes, and before we go, we've had several listeners getting in touch lately, and we thought we'd conclude this episode by summarising two of their messages. Cindy got in touch via email from the US. She's been doing some genealogical research and her grandfather's parents came from Sweden. She writes that the podcast is a joy to listen to and that she looks forward to each new episode, giving her a chance to learn more about where this part of her family came from. Thank you so much, Cindy. Uh, We really hope you enjoyed this episode too. It's a bit more of a cultural one and uh, that you keep listening, of course. And then we got a message on Facebook from a part of the world that also called home for quite a while, and that's Colombia. Yes, that was very nice to share some experiences of living in Bogota. Although Lotti, who wrote to us, has lived there for much longer than I did, and she still lives there. Yeah, uh, Lottie said she's lived in Colombia since 1984 and that the podcast that we do brings her back to her roots and gives a true sense of belonging, which is incredibly nice to hear. Yes, thank you so much, Lottie. And thanks to everyone who gets in touch. We'll read out a few more messages next time. And if you want to get in touch, like all those lovely people, you can do so on Facebook and Twitter or email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. As well, you can check out our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where you can find all the Swedish phrases, family trees, episode pictures, and all that kind of stuff. I think we'll leave it there. And once again, a Merry Christmas if you're listening to this when it comes out. Take care. Goo Yule. Hey, Bye bye.